let's go through Haggai. Right? I get that email all the time. No, I've never once gotten that email. Uh, it's never happened, and I, I kind of doubt that it ever will. Uh, but this morning, we're going we're gonna to begin going through the book of Haggai. And uh, there's a few reasons that we're doing that. Uh, one is that Steve is gone. He is on vacation. And, and, and Steve said, TJ, do you want to preach a couple weeks? Because I will uh, be in Mexico. And I said, yes, I would absolutely love to preach a few weeks. Uh, but as you, if you were here last week, remember, we started a brand new series one week ago called Gone Fishing, which has a lot to do with why we have these, this is my storyboards and, and those various things going on. Uh, but Steve said, sorry, that's my series. You're not preaching in, in Gone Fishing, TJ. So you got to come up with something else to preach. And so I was racking my, my mind and reading my emails and I didn't, I didn't receive any emails asking me to preach Haggai, but uh, I, I was kind of trying to figure out what can I preach in two weeks because I absolutely love to just take a book of the Bible and walk through it. That's my absolute favorite kind of preaching. I think it, in my opinion, it's the most beneficial type of preaching that you can possibly receive because my opinions don't matter at all. God's word is perfect and holy. And so we're just going to look at it for two weeks. And so I had to choose what's something I could talk about in just two weeks. And uh, I almost chose Obadiah because it's one chapter, uh, an, a prophet in the Old Testament. But then uh, as I was studying and kind of preparing, I, I was just kind of reading a bit of the background of Haggai. And I was like, no, sorry, we got to preach Haggai. And it's just two chapters. So this week we're going to look at Haggai chapter one. And next week we're going to look at Haggai chapter two. But I, there's a few other reasons uh, that I think we should also talk about Haggai. Of course, we know that it is God's word, and it is good and trustworthy. And I think one of the things that we get to see in the book of Haggai that is uh, fantastic and something that I think it can be easy for us to miss uh, and, and something we need to understand better, I think, is what is biblical prophecy? Because I think this word prophecy is thrown around a lot, and so we're going to look at that a little bit this morning, and we're going to begin to understand, hopefully, a little bit more about what is prophecy, because Haggai was a prophet. And then the, uh, another reason that I think it's helpful for us to look into this book of Haggai is that I think the message that God gives to the people of Israel through the prophet Haggai is one that is highly applicable to you and me. Uh, it, it's it's a, a message that God gives to, to the people of Israel that you and I could stand to learn a lot from. And that's true of every single prophet uh, in the Old Testament and every single book in the New Testament. And it's uh, something that we should know to be true. But I think this book, Haggai, has something that God wants to speak to us uh, in this season. So let me give you a little bit of background on Haggai, because if you're anything like me, uh, you might not have a lot of just uh, knowledge about the minor prophets, Haggai uh, being one of them, just sitting in the back of your mind. It might not be something you've studied a lot. So Haggai was one of the final prophets in the Old Testament. The only prophets that actually come after Haggai chronologically uh, are Zechariah, who was actually in Israel at the same time as Haggai. And then one comes after, after uh, Haggai and Zechariah, and that is Malachi. And so he's one of the very last prophets in the Old Testament. He's one of the final people before we see this uh, almost just over 400-year gap between the final prophet and uh, Jesus showing up, John the Baptist showing up and beginning to speak the Word of God again. And so uh, there's a, a very important historical context that we should understand 
about the prophet Haggai that is going to make the book make a lot more sense. Because if you don't know where Haggai fits in the story of the Bible, it won't make a lot of sense to you. And so I, I came up with something that I think hopefully will be helpful to you. It's going to come up on the screen. It is the history of Israel in 10 phrases. I think we can summarize basically the whole history of the nation of Israel in 10 phrases. And, and what we'll see is that each of these uh, phases that we're going to look at will include various books. Uh, but let's go through it together. The first phase of the history of Israel is the history of the patriarchs. So if, if you know who they are, it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the beginning of the nation of Israel. So God calls Abraham out and says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And so even uh, by the time uh, it's Jacob rolls along, Jacob is uh, Abraham's grandson, they are already a pretty large family. And by the end of Jacob's life, they, are gone, they go into Egypt because there was a famine and Joseph was in Egypt and Joseph was one of the leaders in Egypt at this point. And he says, hey, there's a famine, uh, you can live here. And so the, the people of Israel, Jacob's uh, sons, all move into Egypt and they, they begin to grow. And this nation expands in the land of Egypt. And so that is mostly, you're going to see that in the book of Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus. And so they live in Egypt. But then, uh, again, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, something very important happens that we would call the Exodus. And at this point in history, the Israelites have been oppressed they are slaves in Egypt, and so God sends a deliverer, Moses, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, and that is the Exodus. But uh, as they head out, they're on their way to the promised land. They stop at Mount Sinai and receive the law of God, and then they make their way to the border of the promised land, and many of you remember this, Numbers, I believe it's chapter 12 and 13. They send some spies into the promised land to, to scope it out and figure out, hey, uh, what, what should we do? How can we take this place over? They come back, and most of the spies, 10 of the 12 spies, say, sorry, no way. We can't do this. Those people are huge. And, and so uh, the nation of Israel believes these 10 bad witnesses, these bad spies, and, and they don't go into the promised land. And so this begins the next stage, which is the wilderness wandering. And this is, I, I tell you, it's so important for us to understand the history of Israel. Because if you don't understand Israel, so let me, uh, let's find Matthew. Here we are. So, the book of Matthew starts about three quarters of the way into your Bible. This is the New Testament. This is the Old Testament. The vast majority of our Bible is Old Testament. And I think God wants us to know that three quarters of the Bible that he gave us prior to the arrival of Jesus. And so they, they begin to wander through the wilderness, and they're, they're wandering, and eventually that whole generation that listened to the ten bad spies dies off in the wilderness. And then Joshua and Caleb, the only two spies who said correctly that we can take over the promised land, they lead the people into the promised land and begin to uh, go into stage five, which is the conquest. And they take over the promised land. They, they are blessed by God. God leads them in their conquest, and they take over the promised land. And that is the conquest. And then directly after that period, we get to the period of the judges. And this is a rough patch. If you are a student here, we went through this in the summertime. This is a rough patch in the history of Israel. A common refrain that happens in the period of the judges is that there was no king in Israel in those days, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
And so what we see is people who, who have been brought into the promised land, they've been blessed by God to have their own place to dwell and to live and to be prosperous. And once they get in there, basically each generation turns away from God and worships other gods. And so each time that happens, God lets them be sold into slavery again, and things do not go well. And so at the end of the period of the judges, uh, the, the nation of Israel is like, we want a king because this whole judges thing is not working out. We keep getting stuck in slavery, and so we would really like it if we could have a king. And that brings us to the United Kingdom, which is not the one that you're thinking of uh, over there. It's a different United Kingdom. It is uh, the first three kings of Israel were Saul, David, and Solomon. And at that time, under those three kings, the, the kingdom was united. They were one kingdom, and they had one king. But then Solomon had a son named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was an unwise man. Uh, and, and Rehoboam, he, he, he wanted to be more famous, more feared, more respected than his father, Solomon, who was the greatest king uh, perhaps that's ever been in terms of his wealth and his opulence and his, his command of his people. And so Rehoboam says, I'm going to be even tougher than my dad. And so 10 of the tribes of Israel say, sorry, we're not into that. And they decide we're going to break off and form our own nation. And so from that point forward, we have the divided kingdom. And under the divided kingdom, what we see is that there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had 10 tribes, and they had king after king after king, and same with the, the, the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. And they had king after king after king. And what you'll notice if you read through First and Second Chronicles or First and Second Kings is that at the beginning of each account of these kings, it will tell you this king did what was good in the eyes of the Lord. He, he followed after his father David, or it will tell you he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And, and so uh, these two kingdoms between both of them, they had, I think, less than five good kings. So they have all these bad kings, and then eventually God decides, I'm going to send these people into exile because they have not followed me. And so we see exile. The northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the north, are sent into slavery under Assyria in 722 B.C. And then about 145 years later, in 586 B.C., the kingdom of Babylon comes and, and brings into slavery the southern kingdom, Judah. And, and this is all the, the result of these two nations, these, these people that should have been united under one king, united under their true king, God, deciding to follow other gods. And so they're exiled. And then today, that, that brings us to, that is the history of Israel in nine phrases so far, and then today we get to Phrase number 10, which is the return. And that is where Haggai takes place. All that history has happened, and now Haggai was one of the, the uh, exiles from the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And uh, what we see is in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 22 to 23, that a new king is in place in uh, Babylon, because actually it's not Babylon anymore. The king of Persia comes in and takes over Babylon, and there's a, the first king of the Persian Empire is named Cyrus. And Cyrus does this in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 22 to 23. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, one of the prophets, might be fulfilled, 
the Lord stirred up the spirit of, king, of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord, uh, his God, be with him. Let him go up. So this is the return. Uh, this is after uh, uh, about 35 years of them being in exile. Uh, the, the king, Cyrus, decides because God revealed it to him, God told him, this is what you have to do. You need to send the people of Judah back so that they can build a temple. They can build the temple to the one true God. And so this first wave uh, of returning Jews is led by a man named Zerubbabel, who we're going to meet in Haggai. And he is the governor of this, this group that returns to Jerusalem, where they are supposed to begin building uh, this temple. That is the express purpose. God himself went to Cyrus and said, Cyrus, here's what you have to do. You need to let the people return to Jerusalem so that they can build a temple. He has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, Cyrus says. And so Cyrus sends the people back, and, and Zerubbabel is the leader of these people. He is the governor of Jerusalem. And so uh, the, the content of the book of Haggai that we're going to look at, and we're going to meet Zerubbabel in there, uh, includes four visions. So Haggai is a prophet, uh, and, and Haggai receives four words from God that God tells him, you need to tell these to the people. And so, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at Haggai chapter 1 that takes place in this context where the people have just returned from their exile in Babylon and they have been commanded to build a temple for God. It says this, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for, your, for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of the house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills on the, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then... Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. 
Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So here we see something that, if you know the context, might be a little bit alarming to you. Uh, if you read that, the first verse again, verse 1, it says, In the second year of King Darius, or of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. That is a bad sign. Because if you remember, who was the king that had sent them back to make the temple? King Cyrus. Here's the problem. King Darius is two kings later. So after King uh, Cyrus, there's another king. And then after that king, who ruled for about 15 years, then we get King Darius. And, and, and this is a problem because this means that this book, Haggai, is being written. The prophet who is speaking these words to the people is, is speaking to the people about 23 years after the people had been sent back by God specifically to build a temple. So, so what we hear is that God himself says, hey, go build me a temple. And 23 years later, that temple is still lying in ruins. This is not a good sign. And this is uh, where the, the book begins. In this state of, uh, of some, some disobedience that's going on among the people. They had been sent back for, for a key purpose, which was to build a house for the Lord. But instead, when they go home, uh, they, they put their efforts towards other things. And so uh, something that I think is, is key for us to look at here uh, is the, the role of the prophet, because I think this is a model uh, of what prophecy is. I think, I think what we see in Haggai is a model of what biblical prophecy is. And, and, and here's what Zerubbabel, or sorry, uh, here's what Haggai does. Uh, we see it in, in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, thus says God. This is, this is what God himself says. And something I think we need to understand, because I think in our modern church culture, the word prophecy is thrown around uh, pretty regularly. Uh, people will say that they are prophesying in ways that I don't think are appropriate. And there are large movements within the church where, where this is very, very regular. And, and I don't think that it's regular here at Northlake, but I do think that it is something that would very, it can very easily creep in to any church who doesn't know the biblical understanding of what prophecy is. And I think that is something that's helpful for us to understand, to look at what is a biblical prophet. And so when Haggai comes and he speaks to the people, he says, this is the word of the Lord. This is the word of God. And when Haggai speaks the word of God, it is authoritative and it is binding. When Haggai speaks, it is God speaking. And the people have no other option but to listen and obey. That is prophecy. That, that is what prophecy is scripturally, and that is what a prophet does, is they come and they speak the word of God. And I think there's something that, that is going on, as I mentioned, in the modern church where we have sort of softened this word prophecy. And, and we might go to somebody and, and we might say something along the lines of, you know, I really think God is telling me to tell you this. That is not how the prophets spoke. That is not what the, Haggai didn't show up before the people and say, guys, 
I think God has this idea, and I, I think what God wants is for us to build uh, the temple. No, Haggai said, God commands. This is the word of the Lord, build the temple. And built into that was a rebuke that we saw, and we're going to look at it more in just a moment, but the rebuke was, you're building your own houses when the house of God lies in ruins. Because the word of God that was given to Haggai is authoritative. And so this is almost just more of a pastoral note that I would, I would want to encourage you to, to consider. It is a dangerous thing to go to anybody and to say, I think God is saying this. If the words that follow that statement are not in this book, that's a very dangerous thing to do. Because we know this book, Scripture, contains the Word of God. But if it's something that has popped into your mind, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I'm not trying to insult anyone. But the odds are that the things that pop into your head are not on the same level as the Word of God. And so we should not step before somebody and bind their conscience by saying, hey, this is what God says. This, this is, I think, what God wants you to hear. Because prophecy, scripturally, is always authoritative. Even in the New Testament, when you see prophets, uh, the prophet Agabus is this New Testament prophet that, that speaks to Paul. And when he speaks, the word that he speaks comes true. He says, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, if you continue on this journey to Jerusalem, you are going to be bound up, and you are going to be taken where you do not want to go. This is, this is what the prophet Agabus does, and the words of the prophets are good and trustworthy because they are the word of the Lord. Uh, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 18 how God responds to false prophecy, to false prophets. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20. But the prophet who dares speak a message in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet must die. This is, this is how God responds. Uh, we see in the law of God, the book of Deuteronomy and, and uh, the first five books of the Bible, these are considered the law of God. God is making clear his will for his people, the nation of Israel. And what he commands about prophets is he says, if someone, uh, does, someone speaks a message that I didn't command them to speak, and they say that it's from me, that prophet deserves death. And this is just something that I think we should understand because this, this lingo, this idea of prophecy uh, is prominent right now in, in church culture. And people want to go to their friends or go to somebody that they know and say, hey, I think God's telling you this. I think God's speaking this. And what I would say is oftentimes the, the advice or the whatever you say in that situation is usually actually probably a good thing. It's usually something encouraging. It's usually something edifying. But I just wouldn't say that we should call that the Word of God. Instead, you should just call it encouragement. Hey, man, I've got an encouragement for you. I've seen this in your life, or I know you're going through this hard time, and so I just want you to hear that God is always faithful. That, that is true. That's true because that's in here. <laughs> and so I would just encourage us as we think about prophet and even as we continue to read the book of Haggai, that that is what a prophet is, is someone who comes before the people. And the words of Haggai that Haggai speaks in this book are the word of God himself. They are no less authoritative even than the words of Jesus that we read in the New Testament because God is speaking to the people. And so what is, what is the word that, that God gives to Haggai? Well, we'll uh, continue at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So we see that God here uh, is pointing out directly their, we could call it delayed obedience. God, God literally moved empires so that his people could return to Jerusalem. God caused the fall of the Babylonian Empire and the rise of the Persian Empire so that, so that uh, King Cyrus would be king. Specifically, I think, so that the people of Israel could return home. He destroyed one empire and raised up a whole new empire so that these people could return home and do what Cyrus said, which was to build a new temple. They return home, and, and, and how do the people of, of God respond to this? These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. This is God's rebuke of them. He says, I, I, have, I have given you everything that you need. I've put you in the situation to rebuild my house. But, but what happens? Instead, they, they relegate their obedience to God to when it's convenient. And, and instead of doing what God had commanded and called them to do today, they wait what turns out to be, by the time Haggai comes around, 23 years. Their own homes have been built. Their own homes have this beautiful wood paneling that God points out. And he says, but my house still lies in ruins. So it goes on, verses 3 and 4. Who is left among you who saw this house? So God is asking, because the, the, the exiles, some of the exiles who are alive at this point were still alive back when the old temple was still there. So God asks, who among you uh, is, is left who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes because it's, it's destroyed on the ground? Yet now, the prophet says, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, Joshua son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. So, this is, this is a strong uh, encouragement, but also built into it is a rebuke that God gives. A rebuke that, that God is giving. Oh, sorry, I was reading the wrong chapter. Verses 3 and 4. The word of the Lord God came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you, you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? We're going to see by the time we get to the end of the chapter, they do obey which is fantastic. And so we get some encouragement in the next chapter. But sorry, this chapter is not full of a lot of encouragement from God. He says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? And God is pointing out their backwards priorities. He's pointing out the fact that while, while his house, the place where they are meant to come and worship him, lies in ruins, they are continually building up their own wealth, continually building up their own homes. The, this, this idea of wood paneling, this is something that was not common uh, in Israel because if you've been to Israel or seen photos, you probably recognize there are not a lot of trees in Israel. Uh, it is relatively barren in terms of vegetation. There's bushes and things like that, but the sort of trees that you need to get wood paneling from, there's not a lot of them in the land of Israel. Uh, they are rare. And so this wood paneling that they have in their homes that they, they've got on their roofs and on their walls, this was expensive. This was a sign of their opulence. It was a sign of their wealth. And, and, and what they had to do was actually ship it in. 
If you, if you remember actually the earlier accounts of when Solomon built the original temple, you remember how they get these trees from, from faraway lands because that's the only wood big enough in the region to build something the size of the temple. And what are they doing? Instead, they're sending away and saying, hey, could you bring wood to build my house? And so God is essentially saying, you built your own houses while my house sat in ruins and, and still even today sits in ruins. And God is pointing something out to them. He, he, is, he is grabbing them by the scruff of the neck, I think, and saying, your priorities are backwards. Your priorities are wrong. Your priorities need to be switched. And we see that goes on in verses 5 and 6, which I will read from the correct chapter this time, so you're not confused. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so, uh, do, does so to put them into a bag with holes. So this is where we see God's judgment. God has, has cast judgment on this whole situation. The, all the goods of this world cannot satisfy. All the opulence of this world cannot satisfy, and God makes that clear to them. He says, look, you've sown much and you've harvested little. You've eaten much, but, but you're never truly full. You've drank much, but you're still thirsty. You are clothed, but you're still cold. You have been paid, but somehow you still feel poor. And what God is pointing out to them is that all the wealth they could gather, all the paneling they could put on their homes is all completely meaningless apart from the giver of those gifts, God himself. And, and as long as we uh, find our identity or find our satisfaction in those things, in the wealth that we can accrue or the goods that we can get, we will never ever be truly satisfied. And we can see from the fact that their houses are paneled that I don't think they really had lack in terms of wealth. I think they had what they needed, but what we see in this passage is that none of it satisfied them the way that they wanted desperately to be satisfied. And I think this points us to a central lesson in the human life. And it's encapsulated in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. The, the author says, He, God, has put eternity into man's heart. God has made us in His own image. And because of that, because you and I are each made in the image of God, we understand, unlike any other creature on earth, that eternity exists. That there is more beyond this life. And therefore, because we understand that there is eternity, we cannot be satisfied by the things of this world. We cannot be satisfied by any amount of wealth. Uh, you, you, you see this with the, the vastly wealthy. How often, how regularly each year do we hear about, and this is not something to rejoice about, but it is something that I think proves God's point, that the vastly wealthy of our world, we hear stories each week about them committing suicide, or each year. We hear about these people who, who we look at them and we would probably say they've got everything, they, they don't have a care in the world. They're not worried about anything. They've got all the money they could want. They've got the homes. They've got all the stuff. And yet still they are so often unsatisfied. So often they, they do not uh, have the, the satisfaction that they, they seem to portray as having. And that should remind you and I 
that we can have the paneled houses, we can have all the wealth, we can uh, eat, we can have all the clothes, but God has put eternity in our hearts. God has placed eternity in us, and so we cannot be satisfied by what is temporary. We're, we're so often fooled by this lie that if we just had a little bit more, if I could just build a little bit more on my home or more in my wealth, then I would finally have the satisfaction that I'm looking for. But that's like trying to add one plus one plus one plus one to eventually reach infinity. You cannot reach infinity. And, and adding more homes or more cars or more wood paneling in your house, I think that's kind of more of a 70s thing nowadays, but... You can add all of that, and none of that will ever satisfy, apart from the God who is the giver of those gifts. So how does God respond to this uh, state of affairs? We're going to move on to verse 7. I absolutely love this very short verse. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. God points out to them, look, You've got the wealth, you've got the paneled houses, and still you're not satisfied. Still you wish for more. This reminds me of Isaiah chapter 1, when God speaks through the prophet Isaiah to the nation of Israel, and he says, come, let us reason together. Let's reason together. God wants us to see the futility of the way that we're thinking when we think in this way. God's saying, think this through. Be logical, be logical about this. Look at your life. Consider your ways. God is reminding them this lifestyle that you're trying to attain is futile. Jesus himself speaks about this. He says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? See, if we live our lives for the temporary, if we live our lives seeking what the world can give us, we forfeit the eternal. We forfeit what God alone can give us. And so the very first thing that God commands of the people when he speaks to them is he says, consider your ways. Look, understand, think rightly about this situation. And I, I, something I think we should understand and point out about this is that the first thing God wants to change is God doesn't want to just show up and change their behavior. He does want their behavior to change, but the first thing that God wants to change about them is their thinking. The first thing when God comes down and speaks through the prophet that, that he wants the people to, to recognize is that their thinking is wrong. And in the next chapter, we're going we're gonna to see this theme continue, so we'll talk a bit more about that next week. But what we have to understand is that the first thing God says is consider your ways. Recognize that God doesn't just want this sort of forced obedience. He wants heartfelt change of mind. We see that in Romans chapter 12, be transformed, therefore, by the renewing of your minds. And so after addressing their minds, after showing them, look, you're not thinking the right way, then he addresses their actions. So verse 8 says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I make, may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. What we see here is that simple change of mind, even though that is the first thing that God wants, isn't enough. And I think what we know, if we've read through Scripture, we read the book of James, that if there's no change of actions, then there actually wasn't a change of mind. And, and so God continues on. He says, this is what you need to do. If your mind has been changed, if you've considered your ways and realized that they are futile, that they are no good, 
then what that necessarily means is that your actions are going to change. And so he says, go up to the hills, bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified in it, says the Lord. When we reprioritize in our lives, which is generally a thing that starts in your mind, when you reprioritize, that must result in a change of actions. And our lives, this is what repentance is, is a continual reprioritization of life, a continual uh, desire to look at the way, to consider our ways, and to say, God, if there is anything in me, anything about my ways that doesn't please you, help me to change it. And, and this repentance is, is a command from God. And, and so, uh, this, this is what he's calling the people to. He's saying, consider your ways and then change them. But there's a question that we haven't addressed yet at this point in the book, uh, at this point so far, which is, why does God want them to rebuild the temple? We, we see that God has commanded this. God moved empires in order to make it happen. He brought up the Persian Empire so that the people could return to Jerusalem and build this temple. But we haven't so far answered the question of why does God need a temple? In fact, if you've read Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul is speaking to the, the, the people in Athens at a place called the Areopagus. And Paul, speaking about God, says the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all things, or gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So the question is, why does God want a temple if apparently Paul tells us God does not need a temple? In fact, you see that even repeated earlier on in first or second Chronicles when Solomon builds the temple in the first place. He says, is God really going to dwell here? So we understand scripturally and theologically that God does not need a temple. And so why at this point in human history has God moved creation in order to have a temple built for himself? Well, we see in verse 8, God says, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. And I think we we live in a, a culture that is obsessed with at least the appearance of humility. We are, we are obsessed with uh, humility or at least other people thinking that we're humble. And so we, we shape our lives in, in certain ways in order that other people would think of us as humble. And because of this mindset where we, in a lot of ways, value humility, when we read God say that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, for a lot of us, that might come across as off-putting. You're thinking, isn't that a little narcissistic? That God would want a whole building built just so that people could talk about how good he is? Isn't that a little, like, isn't God being a little self-obsessed here? I think, I think a lot of people think that way, and a lot of people, uh, when, they, when they read Scripture, if they, if they don't know this God, that's how they think of him, is, wow, if everything is about God's glory, isn't that selfish? Isn't God being a bit of a diva? <laughs> and I think that's a common way of thinking. And so the, there, I think we have to have a response to that because uh, we know we've seen Christ on the cross. He is not selfish. He is not self-obsessed. In fact, he is, he is humble and selfless to the point of his own death. 
And so, so how do we respond to these accusations that, that our God, the God that we serve, is a narcissist? Well, if you continue reading in Acts chapter 17, when Paul is uh, uh, speaking to the, the Areopagus, these, these wise philosopher-type men, he, he says this, he says, In Him, in God, we live and move and have our being. Paul is saying that moment by moment by moment, millisecond by millisecond, it is the supernatural work of God that is sustaining your very life. That none of us would exist if God ceased to will it to be that way. Therefore, God deserves all the glory. God deserves all the praise. Everything should be about God because without God, everything would cease to exist. And therefore, uh, we, we understand that any accusation that God might be uh, a narcissist, or any accusation that God might be a little bit too self-focused, or that God is selfish for wanting all this glory, must come from a state of ingratitude. It comes from a place of not recognizing that the only reason my molecules hold together right now, in fact, the only reason my molecules even exist is because God himself has spoken them into existence and wills right now for them to hold together. And therefore, any any doubt about God's uh, right to all the glory. God has the perfect right to be glorified above everything else in all creation because He sustains it all. And this is what we have to help the world to see. This is the unpopular message that we have for the world, that world, you rebel against the very person that is holding you together millisecond by millisecond. And if you simply understood the work that he does to keep you alive, you would bow down at his feet. You would worship him and you would give your whole life to him. And I think this is a truth that you and I forget as well. And that all the moments of ingratitude in our lives, all the moments where we're not living for Christ, stem out of a place where we are forgetting that God himself is holding us together right now. And therefore, we need to remember that. And when we do remember that, we'll want to build more stuff for the glory of God, not less. So one temple isn't too much to ask. But then second, I think another response that, that we should understand about this idea of God being glorified, that all this is for God's glory, is that God's glory, of course, God himself says that I might take pleasure in it. I think God does take pleasure in this glorification that, that hopefully he is receiving from his people. But also, God's glory is for mankind's good. It is for our good that we would glorify God. And we want God to be glorified for the good of others. Uh, an example would be like when you love a movie. Like I love Lord of the Rings. And I will constantly, uh, you know, if it, if it ever comes up, if movies in general come up, I will state matter-of-factly, Lord of the Rings is the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> and I don't, I don't do that. I don't praise Lord of the Rings because I think Lord of the Rings is going to gain something from it. I, I, I say that because I want the person I'm talking to to go experience it. I praise the movie because I want more people to, oh, I'm going to sit down and watch this movie now, even though it's going to take me nine, ten hours to get through the whole series. I'm going to do it because apparently it's really good. And that's another reason why God's glory 
is something that we should all strive for because when other people, unbelievers, see the glory of God, they think, they see us glorifying God, they think, wow, this God must be good. I should turn to Him. I should place my trust in Him. I should place my faith in Him. I love 2 Chronicles chapter 2 when Solomon is getting ready to build the temple. Uh, over and over, it's referred to as a temple for the name of the Lord. The purpose of the temple that, that God is commanding them to rebuild is for the name of the Lord, that the name of the Lord might be made great and magnified and trumpeted to the world around us. And this is, this is something that we should understand, that, that God's glory is not just a personal thing that you and I should be excited about, but it should be something that the world sees us excited about. The world should see God's glory being praised from you and I because that is going to draw people to Christ. So, so in this command that, that God gives to, to uh, rebuild the temple, he draws a comparison that we've already talked about a little bit, which is the comparison between the wood paneling on their own homes and the, the home, the God's house that lies in ruins. And he points out this wood paneling, and he, he, I think he kind of stabs him right in the heart and says, your wood paneling is all about glorifying you. Your wealth, the, the extravagance, the opulence that you live in is here to glorify you, and that's why you're so concerned about continuing to build it up. But instead, build a house to glorify me, God is saying. Your life is about my glory. Your life is about my kingship. So build a house to glorify me. And here's the thing, I think if the people of God live for our own glory, if you and I live more for our opulence, live more for our wealth, live more for our comfort than for the glory of God, the world will not believe that God alone deserves all the glory. And I think this is part of what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You see, I think when God's people cease to live for the glory of God, they have, they have lost their saltiness. We're called to be salty. And I think so much of what that means for you and I to be salt in the world is to live for the glory of God. We are to turn all of our possessions, all of our thought, all of our effort to the glory of God. We're to recognize that all the gifts that God has given us are for His glory. And when we remember that first truth, that even moment by moment we are sustained by Him, and that it is Christ's work on the cross that gives us life, then we will desire to live for God's glory. And so in verses 9 to 11, God gives the people uh, kind of an ultimatum. We're going to read it. Verses 9 to 11, you looked for much, he speaks to the people, he says, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Because the Lord of hosts, uh, why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each one of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills on the grain, on the, uh, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. So, God gives them an ultimatum. He says, this, th there's going to be drought. There's going to be lack. You are going to start to experience true poorness if 
you do not do as I'm commanding you to do. <laughs> and that uh, often, I think that sounds a little grim to us. So in, in a lot of ways, I think we have uh, softened the God of the Old Testament. We, we don't like to read these things that God says when, when God says, hey, I've commanded you to build a temple. And if you refrain, if you neglect to do what I've commanded you to do, then there will be consequences for that. But Jesus himself speaks this way. He says, Matthew 12, verse 30, Jesus is speaking. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever is not with me is against me. These are the words of Jesus himself speaking to his followers. And this is jarring, I think, to modern sensibilities. Uh, I think uh, this reminded me of, if, you, if you're familiar with Star Wars at all, wow, one sermon, Lord of the Rings and Star Wars references, you're welcome. Uh, in, in Star Wars, there's this scene, and the thing that Anakin says in this scene, it, we're supposed to look at it as modern people, sophisticated people, and we're, so, we're supposed to say, wow, that, that's the wrong way to think, Anakin, because here's what Anakin says. Anakin Skywalker, this if you're not familiar with Star Wars, it's two warriors talking to each other, basically. It really doesn't matter. Anakin says, if you're not with me, then you're my enemy. That sounds very similar to what Jesus just said, right? If, if you are, whoever is not with me is against me. Anakin says, if you're not with me, you're my enemy. Same thing. And then Obi-Wan, this man that we're supposed to look at as kind of a paragon of wisdom. He is a beacon of light in the dark world of Star Wars. Obi-Wan responds and says, only a Sith deals in absolutes. Sith is a bad guy. He says to Anakin, only, only a bad guy deals in absolutes. And I think this has crept its way into our thinking. We do not like absolutes. We do not like ultimatums. We do not like when God comes to us and says, there's two choices. There, there's, there's one way that leads to life, and there's another way that leads to destruction. But this is the way that Scripture speaks. This is the way that Christ speaks. This is the way that the prophets speak. But I fear that, that we, in a lot of ways, ha think ourselves more sophisticated than that. We think there's no way the right answer could be on one of the two extremes. It's got to be somewhere here in the mushy middle. It's got to be somewhere here where, where we can all be a little bit comfortable with it. And this is not the God of Scripture. This is not the way that the God of Scripture communicates with His people or the world at large. God makes very clear, Jesus makes very clear, there is a, a, a road that is wide that leads to destruction, and there is a path that is narrow that leads to life, and there are no alternatives between those two. And I think what we see in this passage with Haggai is, is a picture of the ultimatum that Christ Himself gives that we must choose. You and I must choose. We must choose service to the Lord, humbling ourselves before the Lord, or, as this prophet says, destruction. We, we will experience drought. The things that we have built up will wash away. This is uh, the word of God to, to mankind. And so, the people respond and Praise be to God. I think we're going we're gonna to meet these people in eternity. They respond to the word of God with obedience and fear. 
So we're going to read verse uh, 12 to 15. This is the conclusion of chapter 1. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So we see in verse 12, there are two verbs. And these two verbs should be the way that every Christian responds, really every human being, but definitely every Christian responds to the word of God. And the two verbs are, one, obeyed, they obeyed God. And the second verb is feared, they feared God. When the people heard the word that Haggai spoke on behalf of God, they understood it for what it was, which was the binding, authoritative word of God. And so when they heard it, they obeyed, and they feared, and they trusted God. They they did what God called them to do. I love one of the reasons I chose this book in particular was that Haggai is often considered one of the only successful prophets. Because out of all the prophets, very rarely did the people hear what the prophet had to say and obey it. All the prophets, I would say, the ones that we get in Scripture, there are false prophets in Scripture, but if you look at the books of the Bible, uh, the, the 14 prophets, there are, they are all faithful. They all do what God called them to do, but they are not all successful. Because so often the people reject what, what the Word of God is. They reject what, what God has commanded them to do, and, and even often, they kill the prophets. They, when someone would come to them and speak the word of God, they would rebel so strongly that they would kill that prophet. But Haggai, when he comes, God stirs up the heart of the people, and they listen, and they do what God has called them to do. And I think this shows us how you and I ought to respond to the word of God. You and I, when we hear the word of God, when we read it here, when, we, when it's taught to us, when, however we interact with the Word of God, we obey and we fear the Lord. This is the hallmark of God's people, that, that God's Word is the highest authority in their life. And if we live lives that, that appear to be in such a state that, that obedience and fear of God are not uh, primary, if we live in such a way that, that we don't take seriously the word of God, we are no longer salt. Jesus says, you are salt and you are light. Let your light shine for the world to see. We short-circuit the work that God is working on here in creation when you and I, as, as people of God, decide not to do what God has called us to do. And, and this is where uh, we have to understand, I think, every single book of the Bible points forward to Christ. And, and if we, if you and I, if the people of Israel were called to obey the prophets, then how much more uh, should we obey the Word of God made flesh in Christ Himself? 
How much more should you and I look to Christ who is the Word of God? John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word of God made manifest so that we could see Him, and now we have His work recorded here. And so you and I, Jesus is our Lord. And the word Lord is not just a meaningless title. It means king. Jesus is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. His authority is over all creation. And if we call ourselves his people, we must strive for the same reaction that the, that the Israelites had in this passage, where the word is given to them, and they trust it, they obey it, and they fear God. And so, uh, the summary, Jesus, when He came and spoke, if we are to obey Him, when Jesus came and spoke, you see at the very beginning of His ministry in Matthew chapter 4, He came and, and there's one sentence that is given to summarize the message that He brought to the people. He, when He came onto earth and preached to Israel, the message that He spoke was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, the kingdom of heaven, God's righteous rule is coming. It is at hand. It is arriving even now. And so, repent. Turn to Christ. Place your faith and your trust in Him. Give Him your life and, and turn to Him in faith. Trust that His sacrifice on the cross is all that you need and be satisfied in that. This is the way that we are to respond and I think this is what we learn from Haggai in, in chapter 1 the way that God's people are to respond to the Word of God. Uh, I want to pray that we would have this response, and then uh, I will let you go because I've held you way too long. <laughs>